Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Strevens. Joining me on the show this afternoon was Dr. Arsh Kyra. Uh, Dr. Kyra holds a PhD in music from the University of Alberta. He also holds an MBA from the University of Alberta, as well as an MA from Concordia University. Uh, he's a professor and a scholar, having taught courses in music, religion, and business. Uh, he's a published author. His upcoming book, the Community of the Faithful, Jesus as a Personification of the Servant Israel, uh, will be out later this year, published by Whiff and Stock Publishers. Um, as well, he is Vice President of uh, Prominent Homes, which is a home building company uh, based in Edmonton. Um, you know, he's a man of uh, many talents and a man who wears many hats. I should also say on top of that, he's a multi-instrumentalist musician. You can check out his music on his YouTube channel, which I'll post a link to in the show notes. Um, you know, I think we talked a little bit about that. Is like, well, there's a lot going on there, uh, but maybe maybe it's not so much wearing numerous hats as much as it is just uh, toward a more pure or full self-expression, you know? And I, I think that the interaction we had was probably a little bit, what I would say, professorial in nature, meaning, you know, he, he spoke at length about a lot of things that I, I didn't have as much depth in as he did. And I was more than happy just to sort of listen and, and maneuver when necessary. And I think that's what I would have wanted from this podcast really from the start was to hear from people who, who knew a lot more than me and who had a good grasp on, on things that I didn't. And uh, that's where the enlightenment uh, comes from for me personally anyway. So really enjoyed this one. Uh, a hell of a guy, very accomplished guy. Appreciate his time very much. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Arsh Kaira. Thank you for making time to do this, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. It's a privilege and an honor to to share my work with you. Mm-hmm. Well, and we should say there's a lot of work that you do that we should share. So uh, one thing that occurred to me is maybe just give me a rundown of all the different work that you do, like just different mediums, different... Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, my day job is I'm involved in the construction, uh, new home building industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I do work with Prominent Homes, um, Edmonton. Uh, I also have kind of a side gig with construction with the uh, multi-unit projects, uh, which is called ZAT Enterprises. So that's something that we started recently um, with the multi-unit. So that's my day job, um, construction. And, uh, you know, that's when I do get out there with the hard hat and, and the PPE and the steel boots. And yeah, um, when I come home, I'm a musician, I'm a father, a scholar uh, of religious studies and music, and um, music is is probably the closest thing uh, to my heart and to Mm -hmm. my soul because it's something I've been involved in since I was very young. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's probably the most, you know, the the most significant an important thing that I that I hold very close. Um, so partial to that, I have a PhD in music from the University of Alberta, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through this uh, sure. through this uh, um, discussion. 
And yeah, so other than that, I'm a father. Uh, I have three girls. Um, and yeah, so these are kind of the main things mm-hmm. I'm involved in. You know, there's some teaching and um, different hats that I wear. Um, but primarily uh, the day job is construction and then music and, mm-hmm. and scholarly work as well. So Right on. Well, people that listen to this will know that I'm fascinated by people like you who wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm often finding myself asking, like, did you ever consider not wearing that many hats? Like, did it ever occur to you just to stick with the construction or just to do the music? Or Yeah. Well, I like, see, with the construction, I mean, that's, that's the day job and mm-hmm. that's the daily bread. So that's right. how... You know, we we support our family and we've been involved in construction. I mean, the family has been involved in construction, you know, since the 80s. Okay. Um, but uh, in terms of my other interests, like in terms of music and, and, and scholarship and academia, I see those as all kind of being interconnected. Okay. So I see them, I mean, we can talk about, for example, like the humanities, um, so religious studies and music, history, you know, even anthropology and these type of disciplines. So I do see those as all being kind of interconnected mm-hmm. and something that um, that I see they have a very close relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. So for me, the other side of my creative uh, pursuit uh, in terms of scholarship and music, I see those all as being, you know, very closely connected and okay. and. For example, my my academic work, I feel like contributes to my creative work and my mm. music as well. So I see those as being part and parcel with each other. Um, so it's really not, it's not like a number of different hats, for example. It's actually like I have, you know, my, my construction work and then I have my creative work, which sure. includes scholarship and music and, mm. and interdisciplinary work so i find that stuff is all very closely interconnected okay that's interesting it's almost like to express yourself fully you need to work in all these different ways and it's it's maybe that's what it is right it's like it's just the self that's the one thing that you're kind of pursuing for sure it's kind of like how uh you know theater music drama Mm -hmm. poetry storytelling uh, writing these these things are all kind of interconnected as mm-hmm. as humanities as arts mm-hmm. um so in that way i see kind of my creative work as being all in kind of the same vein yeah. okay right on yeah I, I think i would like to get there myself but i find this is totally different from the video work that i do yeah. and, and the songwriting is just another hat completely but yeah. i like that you kind of it's a path of least resistance to just doing what comes naturally yeah because like when we find like cohesion in the work that we do or we find interconnectedness like that contributes to like a a kind of a harmony like within ourselves so that we that we don't feel like we have it doesn't feel like putting eggs in too many different baskets Mm. it feels like you know one kind of holistic uh pursuit yes um so I mean, the music is something that's so closely connected to my personality and mm-hmm. it affects the way that I see the world. So even when I'm, you know, involved in construction or I'm mm-hmm. at the office or, or doing financial work and this type of thing, the music is still there, you know, like mm-hmm. I, it's something that drives me and motivates me and it gives me energy. Um, so this is something that is just like a very closely connected part of my 
my personality. So. Okay. And that was from a young age. You said that music occurred yeah. to you. You had to do it. it was yeah. In, it very was young you. age. So it's an interesting story because, um, when I was in, uh, I, I had started begging my parents for an electric guitar by the time I was in like grade three or four. And I had a couple uncles actually who played. So, um, my, I had one uncle I remember and he lived, I believe in, um, Saskatchewan mm. somewhere. And he would come visit us once in a while and he, he would play the guitar and I would see him playing. And then I had another uncle from my grandmother's family. Um, so my grandmother actually is uh, from the former Yugoslavia. So oh, wow. she had, yeah, so, so Serbian, um, which is what the countries became divided, you know, Serbia, right. Bosnia, Macedonia, Croatia. So I had some relatives from her side that also played guitar. And so when I was in like grade three, four, I started begging my parents for a guitar. By grade five, actually, my uh, my mother's brother, uh, who at that time was probably in like his mid-20s, he was quite young, he became kind of terminally ill. Mm. And uh, my parents went off to Toronto to go see him. And uh, I remember that was sort of, you know, November, December kind of the time. And so... Me and my sister were staying with my grandparents. And so my dad came back, um, you know, probably like a few weeks before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, yeah, your uncle's, he's going to be okay. And so when he came back, I convinced him. So we went off to Heritage Mall, which is now destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there was a store called Mr. Entertainment there. Okay. And so we picked up a guitar, electric guitar. It was an El Diga's guitar with a PV amp. And I came came back, and then I remember, like, shortly after buying me that, my dad uh, went back to Toronto, and then my uncle died. And I remember mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in my room just with my guitar. And um, so that kind of got it started. And then I remember the that same year, there was a student in our class, um, young young child who actually um, him and several members of his family also passed away in a traffic accident in mm. the mountains and I remember that again I turned to my guitar and by that time I had learned a few different chords you know your E minors and G majors and a couple of like C's and D's and I remember that a few of us kids from the class and I was in grade five at the time we um, we wrote a song for him and so so music became something that was like very closely emotionally connected mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to grade six, um, there were a couple of kids who had, who had moved on to grade seven. Sure. And so I started, a, I was in a band with them and I remember back then, like this is like 94. Okay. Um, so they used to call this, um, they used to call it Klondike days. I don't sure. know what they call it now. K days, K -days now, I think. or something. Yeah. yeah. So we, we performed there at, you know, a small kind of stage, like a little talent show oh, wow. kind of thing. And then I remember just playing at school and like playing, you know, O Canada on my electric guitar in front of the school sure. and stuff <laughs> like that. So then by the time I got to junior high, I was like, okay, definitely I'm going to join concert band. Mm -hmm. And I became a percussionist in band. So that got me started in drums. Nice. So by the time I was in like grade seven, eight, I was already kind of a multi-instrumentalist. Yes, sure. So that's kind of how it got started. It's a, I can go on and no, on no, about this story. but uh, It's a cool story, man. Yeah, so. 
And it was just, yeah. and your parents never put up any resistance to it? Like they just, they, or did they? No, at first there was because nobody in my family is a musician. And they start, they were wondering, like once I started to show real growth and mm -hmm. talent in music, like by the time I was in, you know, grade eight, I was a really good drummer. And, nice. and I was a, quite a good guitar player. And we, I, we had already started a band. We had, uh, you know, three of us from T.D. Baker Junior High there, and mm -hmm. we had a band going. And so they they supported me for sure. Like they, but they were kind of a little bit <laughs> awestruck or mesmerized. Like, where is this coming from? Like, right. you know, but I remember back then, like it was, it was something like, you know, growing up in that part of the city in, in the Southeast there, like, mm. you know, these issues of like race and identity, like it was such a, multicultural community you know with people from chile and korea and wow. and uh and different countries and and you know we we all got along so well and pretty much everybody was like into skateboarding or into like music right. and you know around that time you had the nirvanas and the green days on sure. the radio and the smashing pumpkins and i remember my neighbor my next door neighbor he was probably like four or five years older than me he was from korea and mm -hmm. he he was into electric guitar so i used to sit with him on the front steps of the house there <laughs> and just play guitar and um so yeah, that's kind of how it got started. But I mean, mm -hmm. it the issues of identity and who I was and and these kind of things didn't really st affect my music until I was in like grade eight and nine when I started getting bullied a little bit oh. by yeah by by kids in my school who were like you know I remember some people from from my parent from the same community cultural community they would say things to me like oh you're brown and you play guitar like who do you think you are and <laughs> stuff like that right. so um yeah these kind of things they did a little bit but you know we were we were so into our music and mm -hmm. so into concert band and into you know writing songs and all that that we didn't let any of that phase us If you're enjoying this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And now, back to the conversation. The music seems to be a refugee, you know, or a, a refuge, I should yeah. say, for, for people. And, you know, that time in the early 90s, I'm a little younger than you, but the rise of grunge music and the rise of, like, skateboarding and skate videos, that was a revolutionary time. Yeah. And so to be that age at that time, it probably felt like you were on the, you were part of something, right? Yeah, a, a, for sure. Wave. For sure. I remember like we used to, when they used to have uh, at our school, like in grade seven or eight, they used to have those much music video dance oh, parties. Yes. And uh, oh I remember we'd, we'd always be yeah. just kind of sitting off to the side or whatever, you know, geeky music guys. Mm -hmm. But if they played like, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit or something, we'd Get just go there. and start jumping around like... Um, you know, funny kids, but yeah, no, that was a really special time to be involved in music. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, um, the music that came out at that time, you know, you had like your Siamese dream and you had your dookie with the green day and mm -hmm. Nevermind, And before that, even bleach and, yep. um, you had so many good albums and even Alanis, she came out with jagged little pill and like all this really boundary pushing stuff. I, I, and I mentioned these albums because these are albums like in those days you had a birthday party or something. Mm -hmm. You know, people would go to like HMV or A and B Sound, and they'd buy you like a cassette tape or, sure. or later on a CD. Yep. Like that was like a typical birthday gift that you'd give somebody. Um, you know, they started with those big shiny tunes albums, oh, yeah. but um, 
no, that was really awesome to to grow up around that time and be exposed to music. And I feel like we were lucky because we were in that generation when, you know, these things were really blossoming mm-hmm. and these things were really, uh, you know, the, the creativity and, and musical, uh, you know, the artistic element of the music was really, really like becoming huge at that time. And uh, so I try to stay as true to my generation as I can. Like I still mostly, if I'm listening to English music, I'll mostly listen to music from that generation, okay. from, from the late 80s mm-hmm. until like the mid to late 90s. And um, so typically what I, uh, what I try to do is... Uh, Special guest. Yeah, so I, I usually um, listen to music from that uh, generation and... Uh, Basically, like music that kind of uh, started to become popular, like in the mid 2000s or sure. a little bit later. Like I, I basically tried to completely tune out mm. um, from that type of music because I felt that it didn't, it didn't represent me or who I was or what I stood for sure. musically. So I did listen to a lot of music, like um, new music around 2004 or five and six, like, you know, a lot of the Canadian music that was coming out of Montreal and that type of thing. Um, you know, your arcade fires mm. and your stills and deers and, and uh, broken social scenes. And I used to go to a lot of shows because around that time I was like 19, 20 years mm. old. Um, so I saw a lot of these bands when they were just kind of starting up, you know, mm-hmm. like there's this there's this music festival called Sasquatch mm-hmm. um, that takes place out in George, Washington. There's a place called The Gorge in, in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I was like 20 years old. We went to the very first one, uh, the very first wow. Sasquatch. And we saw, you know, Arcade Fire was there. The Deers were there. Um, there were a lot of really popular bands. And I remember going and seeing, you know, Feist when she first came mm-hmm. out and Broken Social Scene, Wolf Parade, um, you know, all these like really awesome bands. And um, but once I started to sense that, you know, things were becoming too digital, too right. processed, mm-hmm. and too kind of, to me, it seemed fake. That's when I started to tune out. So, okay. um, so right around the times of like the first, you know, Strokes album and Killers and mm. the first White Stripes album. So that was kind of, that to me represented like a change in mm. music. Okay. And so I, I rode that wave for a while, but it didn't really fully resonate with my my personality and I felt that it wasn't true to my to who I was mm. so around that time like 2007 eight, I stopped listening to new music mm. and so I haven't <laughs> really exposed myself to any new music right in the past like almost 10 12 15 years because I just felt alienated I felt mm. like I don't I don't want to change with I don't, I want to, I want to be who I was and I want to stay true to myself and my generation. Mm. And, uh, so it makes me think of like, you know, Johnny Cash when he covered Hurt by Nine Inch Nails and, uh, you know, in that one line he goes, you know, you're all somebody else, but I'm still right here, Mm. you know? So Mm. these kind of things, like I, I took them really seriously and I, and I take my art and my, and my music really seriously that I try not to. I'm very careful about what I expose myself to okay. and what I listen to and all of that. So, yeah, this is kind of what has shaped me, like, to now. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. And do you think there's a certain amount of, like, 
when, when it got to that period, 2005, 6, 7, 8, where you were just kind of growing up and maturing yeah. a bit, so the angst of that music wasn't resonating with you? Yeah, yeah I feel like, um, you know, around that time, yeah, I was basically like 21, 22 years old when I started to tune out okay. on, on all the new stuff. And I had really started to find myself. And around that time, I actually started getting more into... Um, you know, music from from my parents' culture, mm. um, but even from that era, you know, from, okay. from that era, because after, like, 2007, eight, I stopped listening to new music from, from South Asia as well, whether mm. it was Pakistan or Punjab or India or anywhere. But um, I do listen to a lot of world music now. Like, I mm. love listening to, you know, music from Mongolia or Ukraine or or Israeli music, um, Russian music. I love listening mm. to Chinese music and, uh, and you know, music from, from different countries. And I, um, so that's mostly what I listen to now, like whether oh, it's really? like classical. Yeah, like, but if I do listen to English music, mm -hmm. it's going to be music that resonates with my soul and right. that, that represents like who, who I was. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I, I mostly do listen to like, music from the late 80s mm -hmm. until like the mid to late 90s and then a little bit of stuff you know every now and then I will throw on some music from from like 2004 5 6 mm -hmm. when a lot of those you know Canadian bands and you know like the first white stripes or the mm -hmm. early strokes or sure. stills or or the first killers album um a lot of stuff like that but I I I listen to bleach a lot um the first nirvana album mm -hmm. You know, some of the more modern stuff, like the early system of a down, like your mesmerize and hypnotize. Um, and then some of the some of the earlier stuff, like for the heavier stuff, you know, I, I do like the early like disturbed and drowning okay. pool. Sure. Um, some of that type of stuff or the early Lamb of God mm. um, stuff like that. But um, yeah, when it comes to like new stuff, I like I, I can quite. I can quite proudly say that a lot of the artists now, mm -hmm. I I literally don't, don't know, know any of their songs. And, and I'm <laughs> so fair. glad because it means that when I go to my studio and when I set up the mics and when I power up my you know amps and all that, mm -hmm. I know that what's going to come out of my fingers and what's going to come out of my, my throat and mm -hmm. my voice is going to represent me and it's right. going to represent like who I was and the, and the things that really influenced and and developed who I eventually became as an artist. Mm. So that's why the, I find like, you know, in terms of consumption. Mm. Um, so I do also have a, a marketing background. So I did an MBA from the University of Alberta and mm. I, I graduated in 2013. And a big part of that was to assist me with the construction and the home building industry. But sure. I learned a lot about consumer behavior, about mm. psychology and mm. about marketing and about consumerism and consumption. So sometimes I do also write songs about how we consume. And I'm very careful myself also about how I consume. Also the way, you know, in terms of listening to music as well, I see also as a form of consumerism. And so I'm also very careful about mm -hmm. what I'm taking in, um, what type of, you know, music and, and media I'm exposing myself to, whether it's like mainstream TV mm -hmm. or whether it's, um, you know, uh, mainstream music or radio and mm -hmm. all that type of things. So I guess you can say from that perspective, 
I I will vouch for myself and say I'm a legitimate and I have street credibility as uh-huh. a real indie kind of, you know, Absolutely. as a real indie person, true indie. Yeah. Like I feel like I, I do represent those values and I try to follow, mm-hmm. you know, I go back to like the sixties and the Buffy St. Marie's sure. and the Bob Dylan's and this folk and mm-hmm. the music, you know, where, you know, Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi and this idea of going against, you know, consumerism sure. and this type of thing. So a lot of my activism comes from there, but I, I really do try to practice what I preach and stay true to mm-hmm. my art and, and really believe in the things that, that I write and so on. Right know? on. Well, that's, that's great. And I find that fascinating. Um, the way you say you, you sort of curate your influences or you keep your, your, your field narrow because yeah. it's just going to muddy what's going in. It's going to muddy what comes out of you. Yeah. I guess, um, and, and the same could be said about anything, right? Food, drink, whatever. You have to yeah. sort of limit it. I, I guess I wonder um, where I was going with that. It's um, because we're in a culture now where it's like it's endless scroll on your phone. The, the timeline never ends. The, and it's always, have you seen this? Have you heard this? It's like, yeah. no, I haven't. And yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> you know? Well, to, to add to that, like when I was writing my PhD thesis uh, in the music department, so I specialized in ethnomusicology mm-hmm. um so that phd took me about seven seven years to do and i can honestly say that when i was writing my thesis mm-hmm. i didn't read anybody else's thesis and i know a lot of people when they're writing a thesis they like to go through and see mm. other people's theses but and a big part of that was that was that i i don't want to be pulled even subconsciously right. in any other direction mm-hmm. um, other than than what I have envisioned. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in terms of what we take in and what we expose ourselves to, um, you know, I, I do try to be, and I try to be, I try to be a good Canadian too. Mm. So I try to, you know, in terms of uh, Canadian content and the, and, the, and the things that we grew up with and, mm. and a lot of that, because when I was, in studying religion also when i was studying music i did have a lot of professors from america okay so i had um, my phd supervisor was from boston Hmm. uh, and then my other supervisor was uh, from also another part of the united states but obviously they had moved up here to canada Hmm. and um, so you know i found like a lot of the things i was talking about and sometimes that they would they would say they would not really know like what I meant. And mm-hmm. I had some early experiences. Like when I was in um, grade 12, uh, I did play high school football and we went out to Sunny Hills, California to play mm. against a team from, from there. Okay. And I remember how awestruck I was by the, by this culture, yeah. like in California, like it was so different. And I feel like we do have, certain things um that even as albertans Mm -hmm. like you can you can microscope in right like as canadians we have things that set us apart definitely from our neighbors uh then as albertans we have things that set us apart but also as edmontonians yes we have our own unique way of of doing things like and you notice that sometimes when you go to calgary Mm -hmm. or you go to another part of of alberta or of the country like you you feel a different energy and a different vibe um so yeah i you know in terms of 
being from Edmonton, like going from Canada to Alberta to Edmonton, I really do, um, you know, try to imbibe and, and, and be true to my roots as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was born at the Misericordia in 1984 and, um, my dad originally, uh, came to Winnipeg in the mid seventies, but then he came up to Edmonton, I think around like 78. Okay. And, uh, so we've been kind of like vested in this community and in this city, um, you know, from since I was born. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've never thought, I never thought about going anywhere else to study. I never thought about going anywhere else. And I've been fortunate. I know a lot of people, they, they do have to, um, for opportunities and that type of thing, they have to, they have to see where they can find those, um, those opportunities. But we've been fortunate that way. Um, but I feel like even now, like in Alberta, you mm -hmm. have, you know, people who are trying, who want to come to Alberta, you know, yeah. they want to come to Edmonton. And I remember back then, our the population of the city like when i was a kid it was like 300,000 or wow. something so wow. it's uh yeah and so many things have changed and sometimes you do you know you do get lost in that nostalgia and i would say mm -hmm. some people might be critical of me and say um you know i'm uh too much into nostalgia and i'm mm. too much into like you know the the way things were but i feel like that's a lot of that is just like holding on to your roots and your mm. values you know like a tree that has like deep roots right and so when i think about edmonton and growing up um and uh you know being part of like minor hockey growing up in edmonton sure. from like the age of six until i was like in my 20s or or going to you know school and high school out here and going to university out here and seeing the way that the city has changed um you know there there's something that about the way that we grew up in this city and that our experiences and, and our friendships mm -hmm. and, and that type of thing that, you know, if we, and so I guess a big part of what I'm getting at, as I also mentioned with the music mm -hmm. is about staying true to ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. and not just, uh, you know, not just blowing wherever, <laughs> you know, wherever the wind goes yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. It's about being like a firmly rooted and, and truly believing in your city, mm -hmm. believing in your, in your, in your relationships and your mm -hmm. friendships and, and your, when I say culture, I don't necessarily mean like culture in the, in the sense of like the way like anthropologists understand sure. culture. Um, but I mean culture, like in terms of like our, our kind of, the, the cultural milieu or the way we grew up as kids, you know? Sure. And so a part of that would be like, you know, the skateboarding and the mm -hmm. music and, and these type of things. But a part of it is also how we connected to other kids when we were growing up mm -hmm. and, um, you know, how, how those friendships kind of uh, came forth and all of that. So from that point of view, like, yeah, I... I think Nickelback's a good band <laughs> because <laughs> okay, I mean, they're, they're from Hannah, Alberta, you <laughs> yeah, know, and like, yes. I, I although mean, they don't I, say yeah, that anymore. I know they don't say, I know they moved out to Vancouver and yeah. California, but you know, like I, I grew up listening to wide mouth Mason a lot and mm -hmm. they were from Saskatchewan, but I always yeah. felt a connection to them, you know, cause they were from the prairies. And, but uh, if, and you know, I remember back then, like, we didn't have that many artists from Edmonton who really were 
becoming you know successful i remember when i was in high school there was a young girl named marin ord yeah and, I remember yeah that name. so she was from edmonton i remember she was like one of the first people from here to go mm. and get like a huge but then you know you had like your social codes and your tupelo sure. honey and um i remember social code used to be called fifth season they were oh, from wow. st albert and so they, I remember they went out to California, they had like a major record deal mm-hmm. and Tupelo Honeys. And there were a lot of bands like around that time when we were also doing a lot of gigging around like 2003, um, when we were playing at like the side tracks and the Urban Lounge nice. and these type of places. And, um, and Reds uh, was an old place oh, that yeah. we used to play. So yeah, it was it was always nice to see, and in those in those days, I felt like you could actually dream about stuff like that, about you know taking your music. But now the way the industry has changed so mm-hmm. much, like it's it's kind of it's become so saturated, and mm-hmm. it's become kind of yeah. So well, there's a there's something to be said for like now that the technology is so. I mean, look, a guy like me can now do a podcast. I whereas ten years ago, I couldn't have done a radio show yeah. really. And now it's like, well, anybody can do it. So like you say, the market is, yeah. it's saturated. Is that, mm-hmm. Does that depress you a little bit? Does it just make you realize uh, the music is just going to stay a hobby for me? Or No, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's not a hobby. It's, uh, it's a very you know, deep part of my soul. Mm-hmm. But I feel like certain things, yes, they have made it a little bit easier for people like me and you. You know, right. I can go to my basement and I can I can mic up my amps and I can I can put together a pretty good recording like just yeah. out of my basement. And I feel that, you know, from that point of view, it has made it it has made um creativity and artistic expression a little bit um a little bit more accessible. You sure. know, I never would have dreamed about being able to record songs in my own by myself in my own studio mm-hmm. that was always something that you know you'd you'd have to have a band and think about a budget and where are we going to go record i right. remember back then in the 90s there used to be a studio uh on white ave there called b scene studios okay yeah so um that's where i remember like you know we did our battle of the bands and stuff and if you won you you'd win like studio time oh. right and then you'd go and you'd be able to spend like a day mm-hmm. at bc and studios and put together a demo and i remember you know things were a lot different mm-hmm. and but now it's i mean from that point of view i i i love it i think it's great that i can you know i can use the technology and and the equipment that we have to to do things mm-hmm. to to have that creative process in my own hands for sure um but to some extent uh you know nobody buys albums anymore like really right. i mean a lot of people don't and it's just become kind of a thing where you know you miss that you miss like you know buying a cd and like re- you know you'd go through you'd actually you'd take out the liner notes and yes. you'd read the lyrics and you'd read like the songwriting credits and all that and so that part of it has kind of been been lost um so i don't know if if uh, i would say for the most part it's been a loss mm-hmm. i mean we've suffered in terms of art and and the real the real music and the real creativity um but we have gained some some things like we've gained the ability to um to have more of the creative control and the ability to put together projects where we don't have to 
we don't have to rely on uh, you know putting together a, a huge budget mm -hmm. and this type of thing. So from that point of view, it's become more accessible. Um, but I, I'd I'd love to see you know, and I I believe that there are uh, still a lot of really amazing creative people yep. out there who you know, who are, who are doing things, but you have, I mean, to some extent you have to look at the intention as well, yes. right? Like some people, you know, they, they might just want to get like a million views or, <laughs> or go viral or sure. whatever. And it's mm -hmm. not really like the content or it's more of like the style over substance, but people right. would argue that in the eighties when MTV came out, that destroyed mm -hmm. music too i mean each generation has on destroying thing, the you culture. Know? that's how we know we're going in the next generation now because right. we're complaining sure. and Here i remember the yeah. rockers from the 70s mm -hmm. they complained in the 80s that mtv has destroyed music right and then in the 90s the, the 80s musicians were complaining and then in the <laughs> 2000s the 90s musicians so right. i feel like it might just be you know the way that time changes sure and, yeah or how about when bob dylan went electric, electric. in 66 and of course called him yeah. judas yeah. as if he was letting down the culture yeah. yeah well it's interesting you know with bob dylan and and the a lot of these musicians because they um you know they they did a lot of like groundbreaking things i mean mm -hmm. like for example uh jimmy playing the star spangled mm -hmm. banner um, you know, that, there was a huge controversy about that, oh. and, but he was so brilliant. You know, he could yeah. make, he actually, when the rockets red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. So he's making the sound of rockets with his mm. guitar, and he's even making the sound of like screaming and this type, and sirens, mm -hmm. you know. And a lot of people really uh, came after him after that, that, mm. you know, what gave him the right to do that. But I feel like that's also a form of, you know, protest and a form mm. of, you know, anti-war and, and anti-conflict. And right. so there's different ways that, you know, when we talk about when there's a conflict in the world, we talk about how like NATO or the United Nations or different countries, they mobilize, right? Mm. But we can also talk about, you know, how artists mobilize. And so when we talk about, you know, protesting, uh, through music and creativity, you do go back to, you know, the Buffy St. Marie's and, you know, knocking on heaven's door, Bob mm -hmm. Dylan, or where have all the flowers gone and the Pete Seegers and, you know, even the Universal Soldier, Buffy St. Marie, sure. but then even later, you know, Rage Against the Machine, you know, the front lines everywhere, there be no shelter here, but he's talking mm -hmm. about, you know, he, there's a line in that song where he says, trade in your history for a VCR. I know like <laughs> now VCR sounds like outdated technology, but back then they were also going against this mass consumerism and mm. this idea that, uh, you know, system of a down, um, you know, they have their, a lot of their songs on hypnotize and mesmerize, you know, mm -hmm. they say, for example, uh, in uh, one song, they say, you know, why don't you ask the kids at Tiananmen Square? Is fashion the reason they were there? Hmm. So, and a lot of that is relevant now too when we look at some of the protests, like with the Black Lives Matter sure. and different protests taking place. That is, is a lot of it. Is it just you know fashion? Is it just like being seen at the right place at the right time? Um, so there's also this idea of going against, um, you know consumerism and so then even later when you had you know protest music with like 
specific like bands from different parts of the world like mm-hmm. you know even going back to the joshua tree and you two with sunday mm-hmm. bloody sunday sure. you know raising awareness about things that were happening in the world like you know person like me i would have had no idea about what was happening in northern ireland if i had never heard of you too right or if i had, had never heard the cranberry zombie mm. you know if i had never heard those songs I, I i would never know and so i would never have known about the armenian genocide if it wasn't for system of a down right you know so or mm. about things that are happening in cuba or in chile if it wasn't for rage against the machine you know so the, the musicians um have a like a, some of them do show that mm-hmm. they do have you know an onus of social responsibility yep. when they're creating uh content that shows that you know that they that they do really care about the things um that are happening in the world matthew good was another good uh, amazing sure. example when Canadian. he yeah. yeah when he came out you know 10 20 years ago like a lot of his songs um also showed that he cared you know, mm. that, that the music had, um, uh, some of it was also anti-consumerism, mm-hmm. some of his music about going against the industry mm-hmm. and that type of thing. But a lot of his music was also like politically mm-hmm. motivated as well. So, And is that is that part of what drives you? Because a lot of your music, at least some of the stuff you showed me, your more recent stuff is pretty, it's protest music or it's yeah. socially conscious. Is that, you just see no other way? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I really, I, I had started doing that when I was a teenager. I remember mm. when I was around 18 years old, I had actually started writing songs that showed social, that I, mm-hmm. I had like kind of this this ability to, to empathize um, with different communities and to show like a social consciousness and awareness. Mm-hmm. And I remember like I used to kind of be kind of a, more kind of artsy kind of person that was the reason why i did sometimes have trouble with um you know i could hold my own i mean i played hockey i played football Mm -hmm. but sometimes there was some kind of like pseudo um psych psychological bullying and Mm -hmm. things like that that i had to deal with especially like having the color of skin that i do but Mm. sometime like from my own from my own Really? Yeah. Because you were going into some quote unquote white activities? Yes, exactly. Then, so most of the pushback was from my own community. Mm. I mean, from certain individuals. But I remember like I I used to do interesting things with my clothes. And I remember writing Mm. on one pair of jeans that I had. (laughs) Uh, weapon of mass instruction because that <laughs> was when like that was when like you know saddam and and the, Kur- and the kurdish yep. uh genocide and then they were saying that he had weapons of mass destruction right. and so th- these things were coming and and that was also around september 11 you know when mm-hmm. we were like 17 18 years old and these things kind of really all of a sudden showed like okay there was a huge paradigm shift mm-hmm. you know in the way mm-hmm. that that people saw the world and, and the way that all these things went. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was really interesting to grow up in those times, but, um, definitely like I, I showed, you know, kind of inklings or I showed kind of sparks of that type of creative ability, mm-hmm. but definitely that creative ability to write music with a social consciousness mm-hmm. or music that had like a social awareness sure. that was really developed as I pursued my higher education. Mm. So when I studied religion, I, I remember I, I started writing a lot of songs mm-hmm. about 
about kind of the way religion is seen in the world and, and, sure. the, and the, a lot of the wars that were taking place around that time were based you know sort of on these on these ideas mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and also when I did my PhD a lot of my social consciousness was was more activated um, and that's when I started writing songs like Blood Diamonds and right. Smoke mm -hmm. and um, and so these kind of things uh, really were developed and I would I would give a lot of the credit to my professors okay. um, so like Dr. Stephen Muir at Concordia who you know, guided me through my religious studies work. Mm. Um, and then Dr. Michael Frischkopf at the University of Alberta, who really shaped my ability to to use music as a tool to elicit positive social change. Mm. Uh, because he he himself had, you know, had a lot of experience using mu music to raise awareness about different social issues, mm. uh, whether it was like a shortage of water mm. or... Um, you know, even even political issues. Um, so when I wrote Blood Diamonds, right in kind of the thick of the time I was doing sure. my PhD, I used this kind of this word um, or this phrase that was associated with a particular conflict or the idea that mm -hmm. um, in a particular part of West Africa, where a lot of these right. very 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 valuable minerals and and uh, resources were coming from, that there were wars and there were conflict. And, and children were dying, right? And then, yeah. then we were selling those diamonds here in Canada and people were buying them and wearing them. Mm -hmm. The same thing with cocoa and the same thing with a lot of bottled water. Lithium um, too, I think. Lithium yeah. now definitely as well, yeah, and a lot of minerals. Um, so this is kind of how my consciousness was shaped and uh, uh, the ability to, to write songs um, that showed, you know, this type of, because I try to emphasize this this idea of feeling empathy. Mm. And I remember, you know, mm -hmm. it might surprise you, but one of my biggest uh, influences in songwriting is Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and yeah, like I, I felt like even from a young age, like I remember because 94, uh, the year I got my first guitar was also the year he died. Mm. Um, and I remember like I, I, I kind of had this, I felt like I had the ability to kind of see deeper into his lyrics and feel like kind of an understanding and mm -hmm. I really kind of uh, kind of tried to understand who he was and and his passion for music and I remember you know he he used to say things like peace love and empathy and about the ability to feel for other people mm -hmm. and this type of thing um, so I guess a lot of that was shaped you know in my early in my early sure. days and and I remember one of the very first songs that I ever wrote actually was a poem it was a poem written by my sister but that was one of the first poems that we had turned into a song mm. for our band when we were back in back in grade eight mm -hmm. and uh, that song was called day by day mm. and that song uh you know it was like the lyrics also represented this this social consciousness or this anti-war kind of um idea mm. where she says you know uh, dust surrounds us as bullets fly by so i duck and take cover as if it would help mm. everywhere you look corpses lie surrounded by loved ones who will soon die mm. uh, soldiers come from far and wide to stop the violence to stop the dying day by day people cry day by day people die um, you know nothing can be done nothing will be done wishing that trying would even help some risk their lives while others just run why can't something be done <laughs> so we used to sing that song 
That's heavy. And, and yeah, and I remember we recorded it uh, on, a, on one of our demos too, like back in 98. Mm. And the interesting thing is that um, I had fallen out of touch and that was our first band. And we, we stayed as a band, you know, from, from grade seven in like 1996, 97, 90, 96, until like 2003, until we got to university. And then we all fell out of touch. There mm. were just three of us in that band. And we went our separate ways and we literally didn't talk for almost 20 years. But the funny thing was that <laughs> my drummer, he messaged me this past summer. Wow. And so we started talking again after literally not talking, not saying a word for almost 20 years. And and I remember he's like, you know, let's let's re-record these songs. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so we, we just, we're re-recording like day by day and a lot of those songs that... That, and we used to perform a lot, you know, like we used to do like all the, you know, the all, any battle of the bands or any kind of thing that would happen in Edmonton, we'd be involved in that. And I remember a lot of the bands, you know, from from that era, like, you know, 97 to like, you know, 2001, 2002, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember a lot of those bands names and um, it was such a cool scene. Yeah. I remember the first time that we that we played in a battle of the bands at McNally High School there. I remember opening the gym door. I was in grade 10, and we had already had our band going for about three years. And I remember opening the gym door and just looking inside, and I saw the stage and, you know, <laughs> big Marshall stacks and yes. all that, and they had rented, and I was just blown away. Uh -huh. I was like, we get to go stand on that <laughs> stage and play music now. And... Um, so yeah, it's it's something that, you know, it's it's really, really, you know, deep. Like even the friendships and the way I remember like because the three of us in that band, we were called Broken Angel and so we're kind of trying to re record some of the songs now after, you know, not talking for, for twenty years and getting back in touch. But the interesting thing was that the three of us we're all first generation Canadians. Okay. So our bass player, his parents had moved from China mm. and our drummer, his parents had moved from Scotland. Okay. So we all had the this kind of our families were kind of, you know, pretty much like we there was some tradition and mm -hmm. something going on there and and so the way we kind of all meshed together, you know, and it was beyond color, it was beyond ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Like we Growing up in those days, like, you know, you you actually didn't see color. Like, you actually didn't. Like, mm -hmm. you you had so many different people um, from different communities, and it, and it wasn't clicky at all. It mm -hmm. wasn't. And I remember, I remember seeing the change as I got to grade 12 and as I graduated and went to university, and I saw how the new generation, like, it, it started to become kind of more clicky and mm -hmm. kind of more you know, like these are these people and these are these people and they do that yep. and they do that. Very and tribal. Do that. Tribal, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was not like that at all when we were growing up. Yeah, because, you know, you know, we didn't see, like, like I said, I'd be playing guitar on the front steps of my neighbor's house who was from Korea. And then we had, you know, my uh, people from different, so many different countries and, um, you know Chile and 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 even uh, you know China and and so many different countries and even from like Bosnia. I remember my first 
my my real kind of best friend in junior high was from Croatia, and oh, wow. maybe he had no idea that my grandmother was a Serb. <laughs> so he probably didn't even know that. But somehow you just connect, you know. You mm. you look at the person right. and you. It's beyond you, that. Yeah, it's beyond it's, race. You know, yeah. And even from being from uh, my parents having, you know, a Punjabi background, like, okay. you know, these things, like, it, it was just like, and but I didn't really start to feel that. But I can say that now, like, to some extent, I do feel that, that these things do matter more. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like, they've become kind of an issue and they weren't really an issue for me as a musician when I was growing up but I thought I started to feel some of that after 9-11 yes that um, was a turning point yeah I started to feel it and I and I never felt it before but as I turned like 18 19 20 years old I and I was still going up on stages I was the front man in a rock band (laughs) And we were playing it like, you know, we were opening for good bands and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And we were playing hard kind of grungy rock music. And I never felt it. But by the time I was like 20, 20, I started feeling it. And I was like, you know what? I'm different. I actually started. It never occurred to you before. Yeah, it never occurred to me before. And I started to feel it. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it matters. Maybe these things do matter, you know. Um, But uh, Do you think they matter? I try not to think about them Mm -hmm. and I try to just see myself as a human being and I try to just see myself as just just a Canadian as a regular person and who you know who's into all the you know respects the Canadian culture and Canadian values Mm. Um, so I try not to think about it and uh, it's um, I could say it's you know it's it's kind of a it's kind of a double-edged sword because there are moments when you do feel like you know maybe what that person said to me or maybe that person was rude to me because of the way I look mm. but those kind of things never really I never really thought about things that way before when I was when I was growing up but now sometimes it does kind of cross your mind mm-hmm. that perhaps but I usually just try to tell myself that that no, it's it's not that, you know. Um, but I, I I feel like yeah, you know, with with a lot of the conflicts that have taken place in the world and a lot of this kind of, you know, Western intervention in mm-hmm. in different countries. Yeah. I mean, you know, this anti how Americans are so anti-communist and you know you know when it comes to China or Cuba. Um, or, or, you know, just even v- the involvement in Vietnam, like mm-hmm. in the 60s. But I feel like those kind of conflicts where, you know, those have created a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of tension and a lot mm-hmm. of animosity. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's not something I dwell over. I, mm-hmm. I did write extensively about the idea of colonization or the idea of how, um, you know, in my PhD research, I tried to explore how music could be used to reconcile communities Mm. or bring communities back together that were basically forcibly divided due to colonization. Mm. Um, And these communities showed 
centuries of mutual cultural interdependence. So they were so interconnected, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was in West Africa or whether it was First Nations communities in North America Mm -hmm. or even in South Asia, how these communities, you know, they lived side by side and they were basically like so close to each other. And then basically you had the creation of new nation states, you had creation of borders and people just became enemies overnight, you know? And I had this story on kind of my grandfather and my grandmother's side. So my grandfather, he was from a particular place and then a border was created. So he had to get up and leave his his homeland. And then the same thing with my grandmother. And, and they both tell me that, you know, the people we used to eat with and the people we used to play with overnight, we became enemies. And overnight, communities were like trying to kill each other and saying, well, this, you're not, this is, this is our land now Mm -hmm. and you, you have to go there. And this idea of, you know, so what I tried to do with my PhD is see how music could be used to bring those communities back together, um, bring communities that bring the current generations. Sure. Mm-hmm. who I feel like have some of that residual intergenerational trauma has mm-hmm. been passed down, mm-hmm. you know. And so bring those current generations back together and say that, you know, our ancestors, they used to eat together, mm-hmm. they shared together, they farmed together, mm. they did everything together, they worked together. And because of colonization, me and you are from warring countries now. Yeah. You know, whether it's Nigeria and Ghana, Liberia, Togo, Sierra Leone, or whether it's India and Pakistan, or whether it's Serbia and Croatia and Bosnia. Wow. You know, that now, you know, that we used to be, you know, our ancestors were together. They they shared. And now, you know, apparently you hate me (laughs) because, (laughs) because I'm, you know, because... The government, our governments are fighting, you know, completely so, arbitrary, and yeah, fabricated, so, uh, yeah. So, I tried to see how music could bring these communities back together. So, as a part of that, I, I did research in the, in the, um, in the Kashmir region and I, hmm. and I tried to explore that conflict there and how people were divided. I also attended a West African Pentecostal church hmm. for a couple months in Edmonton where different nations different people from west african Mm -hmm. nations would come together in one church and they would sing in each other's languages so they would have like ive is one of the languages and now like the ive tribe they were you know this this kind of regional group of people Mm -hmm. who got divided across like three different borders okay so now those people have their new national identities right Mm. so even though they used to all be ive Mm -hmm. or cree Mm -hmm. now they're nigerians Ghanaians, liberians and and they're fighting against each other over the control of blood diamonds or cocoa or water Mm. or lithium as you said sure so it was amazing to go there and I interviewed a lot of people and there was the same thing in Kashmir. I interviewed Pakistanis and I interviewed people from India who were who were talking about the same thing, you know, and even hearing stories from my grandpa or from my grandma about how, you know, my grandpa says, oh, I had this friend and we were so close and then overnight 
you know, we basically, the army trucks came. Right. They said, you guys are out of here. Like, we got to go now. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, there was so much loss of life. Like, so many hundreds of thousands of people died. And then grandma with the balkanization. Sure. You know, it's the same story. Like, you hear, and you hear the same story from First Nations communities. Mm -hmm. You hear the same story, you know, all around the world. Yep. Um, about how these things happened and uh, you know it's it's so I tried to see even with even with Kurdish people mm -hmm. uh, you know being from uh, caught in between you know Iran mm -hmm. and, and and Iraq and Turkey and these areas and you know there's just this story like and the idea of how the trauma gets passed down to yeah. future generations because sometimes it doesn't click but subconsciously you know, your grandpa says something to you like when you're a kid mm. and he might repeat something a few times over and over. And then when you get older, you start thinking like, why, why did he used to say that to me? Or why did, why mm -hmm. did they used to say these things? And uh, I feel like, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the Ukrainians had the Holom door yep. and there was, uh, you know, Holocaust and mm -hmm. so many things happened. And even generations here, um, you know, a lot of Canadians of European descent, their grandparents were in World War II or they or they experienced like mm -hmm. a lot of them were in camps or a lot of them had to flee their homes. And mm -hmm. a lot of the time we don't realize, but I try to tell my students too sometimes who might be of European descent is that, you know, your grandparents or your nana, she might say something to you mm -hmm. and it's it's not really going to click until you get a little bit older sure. and you remember, like, why did she used to say that? Mm -hmm. Or why did my grandpa used to, to say these things, you know? And so I feel like music is so powerful because music can be used to divide communities, like with yep. propaganda. For sure. But it can also be used to bring people together. Mm. You know, I know in the time of the, the Balkan War that each community, whether it was Serbs or Croats or Bosnians, they were making songs insulting the other groups, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have this idea of singing songs to, stay, to say that, you know, even though you're on the other side of the border, we're yeah. brothers. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, even though that, you know, you, you have this background and I have that background, you know, there's that mm -hmm. idea as well. So music is so powerful yes. you know it can it can really mobilize it can mobilize people to protest peacefully mm. and advocate for empathy and compassion mm -hmm. but it can also make people do horrible things definitely that do you think that a lot of that protest music originally let's say in the 60s or and then on through then it was kind of always us versus the state mm -hmm. it was kind of raging against state control mm -hmm. and now we're being divided along a lot more as they say, intersections and yeah. finer lines. And I don't wonder, I'm not trying to devalue that argument, yeah. but I often wonder if state control is kind of dependent on this, the way we're warring amongst each other over racial lines or yeah. gender lines, whatever. Do yeah. you think there's a place now for music to sort of, for protest music to almost reawaken people to, look, we are all essentially the same. Obviously, we're actually all different, but we're the same in that we're being governed mm -hmm. by, a, by state mechanisms and that. Mm -hmm. uh, over the course of doing this podcast, I guess I'm slowly becoming a Marxist, but <laughs> what I find is I'm becoming more aware of the way in which it is us and the state, not mm -hmm. us, not me versus you mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. 
I think a lot of it depends on the generation of young Canadians right now who are like in that 15 to like 25 mm -hmm. age range. Mm -hmm. And I do have a little bit of experience of working with that, with that demographic mm -hmm. as an instructor of religious studies. And also I've taught world music at the University of Alberta, um, as well as some marketing courses. But I feel like they are so, 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 so important mm. um, because they're the ones who are going to determine the future and, and what, what ends up happening. But definitely the idea of divide and rule, I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a tried and tested mm. true method of being mm. able to consolidate control and power. And yeah, definitely I feel like to some extent we are becoming more and more divided. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's, that's, you know, it might actually be something that's being done with a concerted and manipulative effort to actually for certain people to continue to consolidate control, mm -hmm. even with religion, religion is used by so many different groups to extrinsically allow them to gain power. And so Foucault, Michael Foucault um, writes about power mm -hmm. and power dynamics and how power works in the, in the doxa and a field or in the idea of how there's kind of this, um, you know, this idea of, of governance and police and authority mm -hmm. um, and how power is, um, is organized and how it's, how it's, um, diffused throughout society um, but definitely mm. yeah to some extent you know we do need to to come together and it's it's interesting because you know you had the Beatles even in the UK and you had you know you had protest music in the 60s and that did seem to make some type of positive effect in changing the overall attitudes of a lot of Americans. Mm. Um, you know, when you had the Joni Mitchells and the Bob Dylans and anti-Vietnam and they didn't want to get involved. Um, but uh, I feel, yeah, music still has that power, but I feel like this current generation of young Canadians that that we really need to speak to and get our music across to, you know, the 15 to 25 demographic mm -hmm. is I feel like my experience is that a lot of things for them are so kind of fast and, and consumerism, yeah. mm -hmm. as you said, the scrolling through, right? You've right. got your iPhones and you're just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And there's not a lot of patience or time mm -hmm. to, to really, you know, there's information overload right. and kind of, um, so I feel like if we can try to go back to a more organic and more kind of, you know, slow things down and, and really look at, okay, what are the factors contributing to our division and mm. divisions in society and how we can really overcome those. And as you mentioned, Marxism, it's interesting because both my grandparents are, are very, very devout Marxists. I know my mm. grandfather, he, he has written books on communism and uh, also from my mother's side, you know, there's a lot of this idea um, of and and Marxism or or being a socialist does not necessarily mean that we have to, you know, change our government to a communist no, government no. because democracy is still kind of closely connected to socialism as well. Mm. But um, 
I feel like if we can take the humanitarian element of it, where we're seeing each other as equals and counterparts, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've had people in the music industry, um, in the local scene who have referred to me as refer to each other as comrade okay so (laughs) i know some people have written articles about me and stuff and i feel like they do get a sense of that Mm. element from songs like blood diamonds or or smoke or some of the other songs i've written um so yeah i feel like and that idea is that of, of seeing each other as as equals um, but I feel like it's going to take a lot, a lot of effort with that, with the younger generation, because, you know, we like the older generations, of course, maybe they're also being divided to some extent, but a lot of that mm. is also due to current you know, changes in the political sphere mm. and the way that that society has changed and evolved over time. But, you know, I feel like some of the 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 traditions and the values that you know if we can listen to our elders with an open mind Mm. and not because i mean they also had a lot of biases and a lot of you know they i mean they came from countries like for example that were at war with each other you know um but uh yeah music i think you know i believe in it Mm -hmm. and i will and i stand by music i stand by art and poetry and writing and storytelling and i believe these are very very powerful mediums Mm -hmm. that do have a very very um powerful potential to create positive social change in society Mm -hmm. and that is something that um you know I I knew I would never let go of, but having done a doctorate in music, mm. now it's become not only something that's so deep in my soul that mm. I can never really let go of, right. but something that I also, you know, that is a part of my, you can say like my my physical or my paper identity. You okay. know, it's on paper that this mm-hmm. is who I am. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was in my soul. Right. And I knew that it was something I would always stand by, but now it's it's like it's something that's like a part of my like you know my my civil or my sure, my sure. civilian identity, if you will, as well. That it's written that this person has completed this type of mm-hmm. training, so they're associated with this field. Mm. So I guess I've become kind of uh, you can say. Um, uh, on paper, I've, I've become associated with that that sure. line of work as well. So whether, you know, it was always something that I knew. And that's something as well you mentioned that, um, that uh, speaking to people who have, you know, uh, a day job and mm. who are like involved in different industries contributing to society in Alberta mm. and Edmonton, but that also have this passion uh, for creativity or the arts or, or other areas. So, you know, that's something that, um, yeah, I I know and I stand firm in that conviction that music and creativity and writing these type of songs and this type of music mm. is something that I'm, you know, very, very devoted to and mm. that, you know, is not something that, um, that I can ever remove from from my uh, 
being being yeah. yeah that's interesting it's i think and to be honest with you i think maybe it's the only real thing is is to work in media to work in ex- artistic expression i think that mm. um you know that's what we've been doing since the dawn of time how else can we express these ideas in a way that the community can rally around them because if it's just inside you and you're thinking all these thoughts all day well what what real good is that but to put it into a medium like music mm. is is really to me the only way or, or filmmaking yeah. or, or writing whatever yeah. poetry yeah it takes a lot of work um, actually passion so the word passion I remember talking to a colleague of mine once at Concordia and they mentioned that with the Latin root of passion it actually comes from the term for suffering so that's why they use the term you know the passion of of Christ or, mm. or the or the passion sure. which begins in Matthew 27 mm-hmm. which talks about the 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 um the arrest the trial the mm-hmm. conviction the, and the death of of Jesus mm-hmm. so in terms of passion like this is something mm. that does represent some element of suffering as well <laughs> right yes. and you've seen that that the people who have been truly truly committed to their work they have tired themselves and they have really suffered endlessly for the sake of their conviction and for the sake of their art mm-hmm. or for the sake of their the, the the works that they produce right so it's something that you know when we look at passion or that we look at our drive or our mm-hmm. motivation um, it's something that once it becomes kind of this intrinsically connected part of your being mm-hmm. it's it's something that it's so deeply entrenched in there right. that uh, that it's it's not something that 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 you just kind of say as you know something that you do just to pass the time, right? Certainly it's, not. It's definitely no. much much deeper than that. Um, but the extent to which the the works that you produce mm-hmm. attain some type of you know commercial mm-hmm. or 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 marketability or right. that they reach you know some level of of uh that that people are aware of your work and that they know about right. what you're doing mm-hmm. that's a really important part too but that involves a different type of intellectual facility yes. because when you're creating and when you're like for example writing poetry or mm-hmm. writing books you know, you, you a lot of creative people they don't have that that side of their um, uh, kind of uh, talent or mm-hmm. skill mm-hmm. where they can get it out to the masses or get it out to people so people know about what they're doing and mm-hmm. they can hear their ideas. Right. You know, but then there's some people now who maybe are creating more commercially viable music right. that is style over substance mm-hmm. who are basically marketers yeah, <laughs> so totally. they know how to get everything out there but you know yeah uh, and that's dangerous because yeah. the ideas that can be hidden in those flashy yeah. easy to consume uh yeah. pieces can be destructive you know it's a lot yes. of maybe promiscuity or kind of the breakdown of the family or me 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 or just hustle whatever it is yes a lot of it's egotistical yeah you know yeah it's hard to be you have to find a balance i mean you have to be able to um to go out there and you know put yourself out there Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. otherwise it's a vain pursuit where you're just doing all this work and you're 
working tirelessly and aimlessly, but nobody's <laughs> taking notice, right? Yeah. So you have to have a balance of that as well, where you're where you're able to, you know, tell people mm-hmm. about what it is you do and share your work. Um, but definitely being a true artist as well or, or, or true to your convictions is also something that I feel um, is not, I mean, you don't see it as much, you know, where people are literally dying for their, yeah. you know, for their, um, for their work and their music. Um, but as sad as the nineties were, I mean, you have, you know, you've got the 27 club and you've got, you know, you've got your, your Cobains and your Elliot Smith's and your Chris Cornell's mm-hmm. and you, and your Lane Steely's and all these people, Scott Weiland, Scott Weiland, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, but, but, you know, to some extent that's also, you know, people being taken advantage of and, yeah. and you know, people being, um, the industry being so kind of cutthroat and what it is. So it's so striking a balance of the ability to be indie and to be an activist, but also to have your message and your, your creative works reach people, you know, right. and that's something that, uh, community is so important right so having a having a community and and being able to to share your ideas and be able to connect with other people Mm -hmm. um at a at a creative level and also at a at a level where you know you can see you see the benefit in someone else's success where you actually feel Mm -hmm. positive and you actually feel good about other people Mm -hmm. you know um being heard and getting yes. their getting their creative works out there so that camaraderie right yep. so comrade C- camaraderie, yeah. watch <laughs> yeah. out for the root of that word <laughs> yeah you know but sure yeah so i guess like when we talk about intersectionalism and this sort of real progressive um dividing up of the people it if you could say anything about it it also is leading to tolerance yeah. between groups and it is leading to that community really strong community bonds are being mm-hmm. built around different parts of identity that we had before mm-hmm. i guess do you see do you see a way forward then obviously i know you would say it's music but is there a way forward in our thinking maybe maybe in a religious way where we can uh, start to uplift people in a, in a real way yeah i mean uh, also as a part of that kind of communist or marxist approach is that I know my grandfather as as a you know devout marxist he he kind of you know he he says he's an atheist but uh mm. I feel like religion is something that it's a private and it's a personal thing so mm. if we look at the gospel you know Jesus says not to be like the scribes and pharisees who want the best seats in the synagogue they pray mm. on the street corner they want everybody to know their charitable deeds but mm. he says don't let your when you give charity don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing mm. when you pray go to your room close the door and right. in private in silence pray to your father right in heaven so i feel like it's something that that should be you know that we should keep like as a personal mm. thing like that when that that's a personal relationship between however we understand that relationship mm-hmm. like some people they resonate more with with different religious philosophies but it's something that i feel it's it's a really positive thing that if in if in society you know we're we're secular or yep. kind of like that socialist kind of thing mm-hmm. but that 
we have our beliefs and our convictions and our spirituality right. like in private and mm. it's not something that you know that uh i that that's kind of how i see it as i as i if i take you know that that idea from from the gospel mm-hmm. um so you know there's also this idea that you know he when he goes into the temple and he turns over all the money changers tables and he <laughs> says it is written that my house should be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. <laughs> so this is the idea that he's criticizing, and this was 2,000 years ago, right? right so, right. I mean, we, to what extent we can see also now the way today that a lot of um, religious leaders and a lot of these things mm-hmm. that they don't they don't necessarily represent the values that that the original prophets or, or the original uh, teachers were, were actually trying to get across to us, okay. right? So that's how I see it that, you know, um, I am, you know, I do believe in God and I, and I do live with kind of this idea that, you know, that we should be good people and treat each other with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. Um, so I feel like, yeah, that's a really important thing. But I also feel like it's something that, you know, I don't, I, I feel like it's something that, that is best left like as a private and personal thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like when we go in silence and hmm. not necessarily on this side of the <laughs> road or. <laughs> well, yeah, fair yeah, enough. Although yeah. there is a guy who preaches on the corner yeah. on White Avenue. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> might be kind of doing the wrong, <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So. But as our society moves yeah. towards secularity and we're starting mm-hmm. to see this, maybe it's always been there where this egotism and this greed and all these all these yeah. sins, for lack of yeah. a better word, yeah. take over. Is there a way that we can, okay, fine, the teachings don't have to come from up there, but yeah. is there a way that we can bring those values back a little bit? I feel like we are returning to some extent. I feel like families now, they do want their kids and, mm-hmm. and they do want some of the more traditional, you know, the idea of the home fire or the idea mm. of, of, of the of, of the idea of family. And, you know, there's a song that I listen to a lot by a band from the 80s called Cutting Crew. So there's a song mm. called The Scattering, um, you know, where they talk about... Um, they talk about the idea of, of people leaving, of children leaving home. You know, it's from sure. like a farming community. Oh, okay. But the idea of... Um, you know, um, that boys and girls will see in time that they were wrong to go. You know, if skies could fall with harvest rain, then one by one they'd come home. Mm. So it's this idea of, um, you know, people from small rural mm-hmm. farming communities, they want to move to the cities right. and, and uh, increasing, you know, modernization and awareness yep. and this type of thing. But I feel like they're, you know, people that eventually there will be so much static and so much white noise out there in the world that that people will long for some type of peace and some mm-hmm. type of uh, um, this kind of inner, you know, uh, uh, inner, you know, uh, peace and solitude mm-hmm. that, that they'll only find in, in certain ways. And I feel like people, they do want to return to, to that type of thing, whether it's traditional values. Mm-hmm. And, and when I talk about traditional culture, I don't necessarily mean from a particular community, sure. but, um, you know, even, even the values of, of, uh, 
a family structure and this type of thing yeah. that, uh, you know, of mutual respect mm. and, uh, you know, John Lennon talks about it, but John Lennon again with imagine, right? He's saying, imagine no religion, well, <laughs> imagine yeah. no heaven and no hell. But what, what, what did he propose as the solution then? In that well, song? he's I'm saying, you know, imagine, imagine there's no countries, nothing to live or die for a right. brotherhood of humanity. Imagine mm -hmm. everyone living for today and imagine everyone living in peace. Right. So for some people, it doesn't necessarily have to be a particular religion mm -hmm. that, that brings them to feel compassion and empathy, or that brings them mm -hmm. inner peace. It can also be this, th this kind of idea from like, you know, imagine like John Lennon, like mm -hmm. he's talking about, a brotherhood of humanity right and so the idea that that imagine everyone living as one imagine mm -hmm. everyone living for today no pos imagine no possession right? right so these are ideas that sound really utopian sure but uh to some extent that you know those songs and that, that those type of poetry those do allow us to envision the potential of humankind, you know, where there's mm -hmm. a mutual respect for yeah. and a tolerance for each other's beliefs and convictions, you know. But at the same time, there's this idea that as a society, as a whole, mm -hmm. we want the greater good. We want people to respect and tolerate yes. and feel uh, kindness for each other, right? Mm -hmm. So I, you know dogmatism and this type of thing is also um you know counterproductive because i feel like that divides as well right so i feel like the <laughs> idea of the religious traditions the great religious traditions in right. the world was not to divide was to you know bring people together so i feel like there has to be a mutual tolerance and respect um but it's also something that i feel is best kept uh, in the private sphere it's interesting well. yeah. it's a great way to look at it i mean can you can you hold your beliefs in private and then go out and into the world and act them yes is that maybe the move of course yeah um yeah i mean the idea of uh, from the protestant uh faith which is what i studied quite extensively at concordia is the idea of um manifesting oneself in good works so you let your your works represent goodness and righteousness um so the idea that hmm. you know you you become a viker of god's will so god um by his grace um you know gives you your faith and your conviction so that you can go out into the world and do good works um and and have you know the the fruits of your um of your labor you know uh, for example i'm going back to the bible again because of my training sure. because of my educational training but uh when jesus sees the i believe it's a fig tree that is not bearing fruit mm. and um and they say well you know let's cut it down and let's throw it into the fire because it's not bearing good fruit. Right. But if you dig around it and you give it good soil mm -hmm. and you water it, let's see next year. Maybe then it will give. Maybe then it will give fruit mm. and give it another year. Then wow. eventually, that that tree will also 
bear forth good fruit, mm-hmm. right? So I guess like like the fig tree, that uh, we're known by the fruits, you know, by by our works. Mm. So that uh, the idea is that the fruit is our works and sure. our good deeds. So, um, but that also seems to represent a certain amount of having to have patience and yeah. having to put ourselves in the right conditions to be good. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of patience and a lot of our ability to have to to not, you know, to, the society has become such a pressure cooker. Mm. You know, it's such a pressure cooker society <laughs> that to have patience, we also have to be very careful about what we're consuming. Yes. So I go back to the idea of marketing mm-hmm. and consumer behavior and psychology that essentially, even in terms of religion or mm-hmm. even in terms of food or in terms of music and media and mm-hmm. books, we have to put a concerted effort into thinking about what we're consuming because eventually what's consuming, right? Then those things will will imbibe mm-hmm. and, and start to show signs of those things about what everything we're taking in, right? So if we can start to put more thought into, well, what we're exposing ourselves to and mm-hmm. in terms of media and in terms of the shows we watch and the music we listen to right. and the things we eat and drink. And, um, you know, maybe those, those decisions will allow us to have more patience in the long term, you know, because when everything is so fleeting, everything yep. is so quick, we want everything right away. You know, we, we go through our phones and we go through our, social media and all that and we want to have mm. everything quick 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 right yep. so that represents a lack of patience as well you know before people would have to you remember the people used to come selling the encyclopedias <laughs> to our house and they would yeah. sell like 30 books of the encyclopedia and you right. literally had to have you know a through c d through oh, f yeah. <laughs> you know and yeah. we had to go into a book mm-hmm. or you had to find somebody who was knowledgeable in that field <laughs> right. and ask them right you know you would actually have value for your teachers or your instructors you would you would ask them mm-hmm. but now because of the instant information mm-hmm. everybody's kind of an expert <laughs> you know in everything or we're so, tricked into thinking that yeah we, you know yeah yeah, so, you used to go to the movie theater yeah. and they'd, they'd play the newsreel yeah. first before the movie. Yeah. you get your news once a week. Yeah. yeah. And now, yeah. like you say, pressure cooker is a great word, but it's also like my friend says microwave. Yeah. You know, it's just quick, 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 quick. Yeah. quick. Just give it to me. Yeah. No, that's true. Like, I feel like with the patients, um, you know, it's everything. Like, even if we look at, you know, hockey now, like (laughs) hockey used to be such a beautiful game. Like you remember the Mario Lemieux and the Bobby Orr's, it has become so violent. And (laughs) and even you look at some of the the things when they're, you know, even this mixed martial arts and Mm -hmm. this thing where they're beating each other, the living daylights out of each other, and mm. people are cheering like so loud. It's right. it's barbaric, it you is. know. And we wonder, like, okay, like, what what are we exposing ourselves to, and where you know these things are going to have some type of subliminal effect on the way we act and and see mm-hmm. the world, you know? Y- yeah. 
Although so, I don't think that mixed martial arts <laughs> is too different from the gladiators of, of old. Yeah, it's like the gladiators thing too, you know. And I mean, like, it's um, it's something that you know, it's there's so many things that I'm not saying that you know that that we need to stop sport and stop mm. you know martial arts and this type of thing, but I feel like we need to bring back the mutual respect mm. and the camaraderie and the idea of of having you know this this idea of it's it's kind of hard to describe because i mm. i do see it in multiple levels in society um but it's uh you know i don't have enough i i don't feel like i'm I can say like mm. give a proper comment on that because I like the way I live my life and the things I expose myself to I don't want to put conditions on anybody else mm. and say that if you want to be a good human being don't watch mixed martial arts <laughs> sure. or if you want to be a good human being you know don't do this because that's not for me to say and that's not my right to say anything like that mm. but i feel like for me personally i can talk to my own personal experience and say that i try to really mo um, kind of moderate what i'm taking in and hopefully you know through through that i allow myself to feel compassion and empathy for my fellow human being mm. um but i'm no nowhere near a perfect person at all you know but i i feel like perhaps you know that there's certain changes we can make um in the way we live our lives that that maybe can contribute to us seeing each other um with more tolerance compassion and respect um and maybe i could say that from the perspective of a scholar sure um not as like a preacher or anybody like that or a spiritual guide or anything which is mm. not anything what i am mm. i'm a musician and a scholar and a songwriter but i feel like from what i've read um, you know, there's a song from my um, parents' culture, and in that song it says, My friend, if you have read four books, I have a lot of questions to ask you. But what it's saying is, you know, if you've read a few books, <laughs> like if you are a learned man, if you sure. are an educated man who can read and write, then and it's coming from the perspective of a villager okay that my friend if you have read a few books i have so many questions to ask <laughs> you right so um yeah it's it's not to say that you know that i have any authority to to say that you know this is the way that people should mm -hmm. should um should live but perhaps you know we all have ideas and if we can if we can come to some type of mutual understanding and say that, you know, these are the things that are important to me and these are the things that I think that society should represent as a whole. Um, but, 
yeah, I feel like there's so much division and there there's so much um there's so much frustration and anger that people are really um hesitant and really um what do you call it? they're they're really uh skeptical mm. about anybody um who, and it's the same thing with religion as well. If anybody talks about religion, mm-hmm. uh, people tend to be really skeptical and they they usually think that there's some underlying motive or that, you know, there's some extrinsically motivated um, mm-hmm. desire to obtain some type of um, power or control. But I feel like even in religion, there are a lot of beautiful ideas mm-hmm. Um, whether we go to the Bible, but even in the Islamic tradition and the Jewish tradition, there are a lot of beautiful, beautiful ideas. Um, So there's so much out there um, for us to gain insight from and to learn from. And, uh, you know, it's... uh, But, you know, it's, it's up to... It's up to every individual to mm. to determine what you know their path is um so i feel like if we can if we can give each other the space and the time mm. and the respect and respect each other's um beliefs i feel like that would um that would allow us to to definitely make a lot of progress as a society as a whole mm. Couldn't have said it better. Um, Dr. Kara, you've got a book coming out, is that correct? Yes. Um, so my book uh, is coming out by an American publisher called Whip and Stock. And right now it's in the copy editing phase. So mm-hmm. that book should probably come out in about three to four months, I would assume would be the timeline. Okay. Um, that is a biblical studies book, um, which talks, the title of the book is The Community of the Faithful, Jesus as a Personification of Servant Israel. So that book uh, is my, represents my research. Uh, Mm. In biblical studies, we call it exegesis, which is when we look at prophetic scripture and we try to use historical context and history to Mm. determine what the relevance and, and what those scriptures really really mean and Mm. of course a lot of it seems subjective but we try to be as scientific and as critical as possible in this type of study so what i've done is i've looking at um taken a look at two of the exilic prophets from the old testament uh, isaiah and daniel and i've looked at their prophecies where each one of them has described a singular person um Isaiah describes the suffering servant Hmm. um, as somebody who suffers on behalf of others. Um, So one of the scriptures from Isaiah 53 is, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten before God, and afflicted. Hmm. He was wounded for the sake of our transgressions. He was bruised for the sake of our inequities. The chastisement for our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So he is describing a singular person Hmm. who suffers on behalf of others. Then Daniel in chapter 7 has a dream 
where he also sees what he describes as a singular person, but in this situation, the singular person who he describes as the son of man mm. has a position of glory and respect and authority. So he said, he describes how he sees four different beasts. And after those beasts, he says, and behold, in my vision, I saw one like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. So these two singular individuals or singular people that both Isaiah and Daniel describe in their prophecies were interpreted later by Christians as messianic prophecies pointing to the Messiah Jesus. Hmm. So Christians would say that the one who suffers on behalf of others is Jesus. And like a lamb being led to slaughter, he's quiet and he, he says nothing. And Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, Christians would say, represents Jesus in his enthronement in heaven after mm. his resurrection. But the Jewish interpretation of those prophecies says that the singular person who Isaiah describes as a suffering servant represents a singular personification of the nation Israel. Okay. So that Israel is suffering on behalf mm. of others. And when Daniel describes the coming of the Son of Man with great power and glory, the Jewish interpretation is that this represents the, the reconciliation and the restoration of Israel as mm. the light to the nations, as, as God's elect. So what I try to do in this book is take the two prophecies, the Jewish and the Christian, mm. and try to reconcile them and say that you can have the traditional Jewish interpretation um, reconciled with the traditional Christian theological interpretation mm. if we say that Jesus, as a Jew from first century Israel, from the line of David, understood what the prophets meant, and he himself was the singular personification of the nation of Israel. So when Jesus suffers and dies um, after his trial and execution, mm. that this is as a representative of that suffering servant of Isaiah as the singular personification of Israel. And Jesus' enthronement after his resurrection, as with the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, mm. also represents the restoration and exaltation of Israel as Jesus is a singular personification of that entire nation. Hmm. So in the book, I go through in very much detail um, based on the scriptures and based on um, the Old Testament as well as from the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. So I try to explore this concept and I try to explore the idea of how one man can singularly personify an entire nation or mm -hmm. can come to represent the singular embodiment or singular personification of an entire community of people. Mm. And then the next stage of interpretation in that is that I show that as Jesus singularly personified Israel, now the church or the community of the faithful, mm -hmm. as the book is called, they collectively personify mm. Jesus. 
So you have okay. a nation personified mm -hmm. by an individual, mm -hmm. personified by a nation. So that the church represents the physical presence. When I say church, I don't necessarily mean a particular denomination okay. or a particular group. I mean those people who truly um, embody and represent the physical sure. presence of the Messiah on earth so that his second coming, or mm -hmm. as they call in biblical studies, parousia, is manifested through the presence of his disciples or his people mm -hmm. on earth who represent his physical presence by teaching, proclaiming, sure. healing, and acting out as kind and compassionate human beings on earth. So mm -hmm. they represent as a collective mm -hmm. his physical presence. So that's what I try to explain <laughs> in this book. That's wild. So. You did a good job of it here. I feel like I've read the book. Yeah. Oh. And what was that process like? How many years of research went into that? That took a lot of research. So um, from 2006 until 2012, uh, six years, mm -hmm. um, six, seven years, I studied the Bible very closely when I was studying at Concordia. I also did study the other Abrahamic faiths as okay. well, including Judaism. I've studied Islam very closely as well. Um, but definitely this book... Um, is from a biblical studies perspective okay. and represents um, that side of my training. Um, my PhD thesis looked very closely at Islam, okay. and Sufism, and mystical forms of Islam with uh, Sufi poetry. Okay. And so that's another uh, side of my religious studies training. So this ability that I developed through the course of my academic training to see... Um, the different Abrahamic faiths um, through a unique perceptual lens was one of the reasons that I, I did teach religion at Concordia for sure. about four years. Um, so I was teaching the Abrahamic faiths, uh, Islam, okay. Judaism, and Christianity. So, hmm. yeah. And this interpretation of Jesus as I'm not going to try and read, yeah. you just said it so well, but do you hmm. think that that's, is that implied in the Bible? Or is that something that required a sort of, you know, yeah. supplementary research yeah. to get there? So what we talk about in biblical studies is the idea of hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. And the way it's typically described is that you have an onion. And as you peel, you have different, different layers of the okay. onion, right? Mm -hmm. So the more um, you understand the historical context and, and this type of thing, the the deeper you can go into your interpretation and analysis of, mm -hmm. of, of who this historical person was, mm -hmm. right? Who, who lived in the first century sure. and um, how he's represented in mm -hmm. the Gospels. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely, um, it's definitely like a critical analysis, okay. which, would, which would not be for like, uh, which would you'd have to have some kind of knowledge, I think, mm -hmm. of uh, of the scriptures, um, because typically, like when we look at organized religion or institutional mm. uh, religions, the emphasis is usually just on faith. Um, right. So we don't give um, 
you know, there are there's a huge field of biblical scholarship and a lot of people who try to go really, really deeply into understanding. But most biblical scholars do have a particular area that sure. they specialize in. Okay. So my area that I specialized in was typically eschatology, which is known as the end of times. Okay. Um, so the second coming and this type of thing as well as the exilic prophets, so Mm. the Jewish prophets during the exile to Babylon. Um, So I looked very, very closely at the Jewish roots of uh, of Christianity and the, and the idea of Jesus as a as a first century Jewish mm. um, uh, historical figure. Um, so this is the kind of thing with eschatology. You know, you have scriptures like Matthew twenty four, okay. where Jesus talks about the second coming, and he mm-hmm. says that it's kind of this. Uh, people also describe it as apocalypse or mm-hmm. apocalypticism. So. Matthew talks about how the sun and the moon will be dark and mm. the stars will fall from the sky and the heavens will shake and, and this type of thing. So this idea of the parousia or the second coming apocalypticism, eschatology, um, I've, I've looked at in quite a bit of detail, um, as well as the, the, the Jewish roots. Um, okay. So the, the gospel that I focus on mostly in my research is Matthew. Mm-hmm. And because Matthew has the strongest correlation to the Jewish um, prophets and okay. to the Old Testament and, mm. and that interconnectedness. Like when you look at the idea of Christology, so Christology is the, is the idea of the study of the divine nature of Jesus. Okay. So John would be the highest in Christology where he's mm. seen as being the son of God and the Christ and right. this type of idea. But Matthew, which is the first gospel, and John is the fourth. So okay. Matthew would be the lowest in Christology where Matthew mm. sees him as a Jewish man, as the Messiah, as a prophet, mm-hmm. um, as somebody who comes to suffer and be, and and. and die on behalf of his nation Hmm. so there's different perspectives definitely um but uh this is one kind of perspective and i feel like i've i offer a unique insight into this as um you know as i feel like i i do have some objectivity when I'm studying this because okay. I'm not a Christian. Mm. So I feel like I, and I, I didn't grow up going to church or okay. I didn't grow up, you know, doing any of these things. So I feel like my perspective is, is unique yeah. and uh, that I can offer kind of uh, in an interesting and informed way of looking at, at my interpretation of, who this person was, having studied Mm -hmm. the Bible extensively uh, from a kind of scholarly or academic uh, lens. Okay, seeing it more as a text than as some sort of historical record? I do see it as a historical record, definitely. I I definitely do see it as um, having a lot of historical authenticity. Okay. Um, So definitely, but I just... When I say not a Christian, I mean somebody that was not raised in a particular Hmm. denomination or with dogma or with, you know, going to a particular denomination of church or anything like that. But definitely 
this person, this historical Jesus mm -hmm. speaks to me in a profound way. Hmm. That I can say without a doubt, having studied him so closely for so many years and having written about him, I'm completely, um, you know, mystified mm. and, and, and captivated by who this person was. Mm. So from that point of view, I feel like I offer kind of a unique perspective on, on, on that. No, idea. totally. I think that's refreshing to hear that you can be interested in, in, the, in the text of the Bible and, and yeah. who Christ was without having to make the leap of faith and yeah. be a real Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know we're getting to the end of our time here, but Dr. Kara, that was awesome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. What's the best way if people want to read your uh, work? So or? please uh, go to www.arshkara.com, A-R-S-H-K-H-A-I-R-A.com. And from there, you can see my music and my YouTube channel. And definitely my book uh, will come out uh, in a few months. And also with my music um i do have new music that i'm working on currently as well mm -hmm. so i would also really appreciate if listeners could subscribe to my youtube channel mm -hmm. uh, which they can also access from my website and it's basically just youtube.com slash c slash arshkara and uh yeah i would uh really appreciate the support and uh thank you so so much patrick for this amazing, amazing interview. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to help me get my work out to my people. Pleasure. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a huge, huge uh, uh, help uh, mm. to me. And I, I really, really very much appreciate it. So thank you so much for, for everything. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And hey, this is just the first of uh, a couple things we might do together. So thank right you on. so much. Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe as well and leave a five-star review.